I'm not trying to regurgitate myself. I showed people that I understand how to make perfect, but yeah. that's not what I'm here to yeah. do. I'm here to crack the pavement and make new grounds, you know, sonically and in society. Yeezy season approaching, fuck whatever y'all been hearing. Fuck what, fuck whatever y'all been wearing. A monster about to come alive again. In 2013, Kanye West released Yeezus, his sixth studio album. It sounded like nothing the rapper had ever produced. Fans recoiled at the album's experimental sound. This was Kanye at his most provocative, lyrically and sonically. Critics began to wonder if Ye, who seemed to be at the height of his career, might finally be losing his touch. And fans initially met Yeezus with a heavy dose of suspicion. One of the loudest complaints about the record was that it simply wasn't a rap album. But then, something strange happened. Over time, the world Kanye constructed on Yeezus, full of guttural and chaotic emotion, combined with so much noise, started to feel and sound like the world around us. Kanye's collaborators on the album, from indie electronic musicians like Arca and Hudson Mohawk, to icons like Daft Punk and Rick Rubin helped him construct a blueprint for where popular music was heading. A decade after its release, it's hard not to hear Yeezus everywhere. Through the sheer force of creative will, Kanye imagined new heights for the culture at large. Just ask Dave Rowland, a producer and engineer who worked on the album. I was like, man, honestly, you're not going to get this record for at least 10 or 20 years. I was like, this is this is one of those records that like, no, it is just too early for it. But then you could see the effects of that record over the next, you know, five years. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for the season finale of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums an Amazon original podcast, where we dig into 10 albums off our new list. In this episode, Kanye West, Yeezus. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Here's Rolling Stone's senior editor, Jeff Ihaza, with the full story of how Kanye's most divisive album became one of his greatest. In the decade before Yeezus, Kanye West's career was on a steady, albeit rocky, upward trajectory. He'd become one of rap's most essential producers thanks to a string of projects with Jay-Z and Rockefeller Records. And he achieved something that was unheard of at the time in hip-hop. He made the jump from superstar rap producer to superstar rap artist. His 2004 debut, The College Dropout, was an immediate hit, reaching number two on the charts and introducing Kanye to the wider world of pop music. It also gave us classics like Through the Wire and introduced the world to Kanye's more religious side with Jesus Walks. Over the years, Kanye, or Ye as he's known today, would drop a string of zeitgeist-defining records. 
There was late registration in 2005 and its follow-up graduation in 2007. Even Kanye's 2008 album, 808s and Heartbreak, which found the rapper in a more emo-centric mood, would eventually be recognized for its massive impact on the sound of pop music at large. And Kanye did all of this while becoming an even bigger force in the world of celebrity culture. And, unfortunately, his fame didn't always come from his creative genius. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Yo, Taylor, I, I'm really happy for you. I'm gonna let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. The young lady seems like a perfectly nice person. She's getting her award. What's he doing Why would up he there? Do that? He's a jackass. <laughs> By the 2010s, Kanye had successfully risen, fallen, and risen again in the eyes of the public. He'd also successfully tilted the sound of the mainstream in a new direction. With 2010's My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy and his joint album with Jay-Z, 2011's Watch the Throne, Kanye reached the kinds of peaks no other rap artist of his generation could have imagined. Kanye's extraordinary run in the 2010s culminates in the earth-shattering hit Niggas in Paris from Watch the Throne. In 2012, at a concert in Paris, no less, Kanye and Jay even set the record for performing the same song a consecutive dozen times. So by the time Yeezus came around the following year, the biggest question surrounding Kanye West was what could he possibly do next? Yeezy season approaching, fuck whatever y'all been in, fuck what, fuck whatever y'all been wearing, a monster about to come alive again. In a lot of ways, Kanye's 2000 output is the fulfillment of the promise of hip-hop's pop ascendance in the mid to late 90s. John Caramonica is a music critic for the New York Times. He's also one of the few journalists who's gotten the chance to interview Kanye throughout his career. He's currently working on a biography of the rapper. At that era, there was not a guarantee that hip-hop records would be at the center of pop music. Kanye arrives basically already seeing how far Puff went, already seeing how far Dre went, and understanding that he's building on that foundation. He's not starting from behind the starting line. He's standing on the shoulders of these incredible achievements. And he's like, okay, I can make songs that are that accessible, that true to hip hop, that complex, and also make them far more ornate, make them far more political, make them far more imaginative lyrically. That's the direction that he's pushing in. Yeezus is like, I don't need to do this anymore. Why am I doing this? What was that for? What did that get me? By the early 2010s, genre lines had begun to blur beyond recognition. Many of the new artists coming up at the time, from Odd Future to The Weeknd, were making music that didn't easily fit into prevailing ideas about what hip-hop sounded like. It was in part thanks to social media. The polish of big-budget production had lost its appeal, and audiences began to seek the intimacy fostered on platforms like Tumblr and SoundCloud where artists were already cultivating direct relationships with their fans. It was a dynamic almost tailor-made for an artist like Kanye. The thing that Kanye has always sought out is an unfettered path between him and his ability to express. Before Twitter became what Twitter is, deep sigh, it was that. And so it's pretty well suited for a guy like Ye. It's like right on his phone. Didn't gotta talk, don't gotta talk to a publicist, don't gotta talk to a manager, don't gotta, you know, it's just right there. It's optimal for someone like Ye. 
Kanye recognized that there was a new sensibility forming among young people at the time. You can see it in the collaborators he worked with on Yeezus. Hudson Mohawk is an electronic musician from the UK and one half of the duo Tonight. He's responsible for one of Yeezus's most iconic tracks, Blood on the Leaves, which samples tonight's Are You Ready? He recalls his initial surprise that Kanye had even heard of him. The late designer Virgil Abloh, Kanye's longtime creative partner, made the connection. Here's Hudson Mohawk. I mean, I'd been sending out beats to people for a long time, and we'd been doing more and more parties in London. I know he was friends with Virgil at that point, and that was prior to anyone really even knowing who Virgil was. I was at some festival I was DJing at in Bulgaria or the Czech Republic or something. I remember getting this this email from Virgil and essentially saying, like, would you consider, like, coming in and, like, playing some music for us? I just need to clear my mind now. It's been racing since the summertime. Now I'm holding down the summer now. Within our little scene, a lot of us had kind of met via, like, MySpace, like, even several years prior to that. And a lot of what we'd been doing was, like, it was electronic production, but it was heavily influenced by rap and heavily influenced by rap production. It was just an interesting experience to, to see firsthand, like, how those things were able to kind of intermingle into one sort of succinct album. So let's get on with it. We could have been somebody. Said you had to tell somebody. Let's take it back to the For Hudson Mohawk, the experience of working on a Kanye West album would be unlike anything he could have imagined. I know there were various people kind of dipping in and out. Weekend was there. Pusha was there, his manager, a couple other people. But um I mean, that was, I guess that was my first experience of working sort of through the process of putting together a record of that kind of scale. Um, so it was, you know, a real eye-opening experience for me, especially as someone who's like not a tremendously like outgoing person. Kanye recorded in locations around the world, creating the album almost stream of consciously. David Rowland was an assistant engineer at Germano Studios in New York, one of the last stops on the album's cross-continental spree, just after Kanye had wrapped up recording in Paris. So my role was to basically bring everybody in and make them feel very comfortable in the studio. So Noah Goldstein, he was the head engineer for Yeezus, Kanye's main guy at the time. They came in, had brought in a ton amount of gear and, I mean, a lot of people. And um, it was really making them comfortable and making sure that they were able to continue doing everything in New York that they were doing in Paris and try to knock out the rest of the record. Yeezus opens with the track On Sight, which to this day proves to be one of Ye's biggest sonic departures. The song sounds almost like an intentionally difficult record, with chaotic synths bouncing off of drums and hits that all just seem too loud. Hudson Mohawk was there during the recording of On Sight. As far as I remember, it was another song where there were like infinite different variations of it. and. 
it was never like quite right and we really just had like a drum beat like it was i guess a little kind of loop from from uh, daft punk it wasn't coming together as like a, a finished song and i remember having like multiple attempts at it and just not not getting it dave roland remembers the creative energy in the studio during the production of the entire album Everyone's trying to do their best work to try to make it and get their, you know, whether it's a snare sounds or their 808 pattern or whatever. And every like everything just got done and over and over, you know, everyone just had like like homework for the day where they were just trying to like, oh, this is what Kanye wants me to do. And then, you know, we'd listen to like eight versions of the same song, you know, and see what he was going to actually, you know, move forward with or just like have somebody scrap it, go back to it and redo it. And Kanye's reputation as a perfectionist is what makes some of the rougher edges on Yeezus seem surprising. As a musician, Ye is among the most precise, and yet the album is full of what on first listen sound like accidental noises. From a sound engineer's perspective, the album was the antithesis of what mainstream production looked like at the time. Roland remembers the visceral elements of I Am A God, another single from Yeezus, and how it changed the way he thought about technology's relationship to music. I am a god. Hurry up with my damn massage. Hurry up with my damn menage. Get the Porsche out the damn garage. And that, that actual specific track, um, there's that like, you know, like the horror movie kind of thing towards the end. Um, the, um, that was one of those crazy things because, like, again, we had Pro Tools. We we can see every single waveform. You know, we'll do a fade so you don't hear the the audio clipping. That was kind of the first time of like being de- like learning to be deliberate on not making it perfect. Because like they could have easily taken out those little clips. It, it just was just a little drag over to make it, and then it just would have been ah. But it sounded way too clean. I mean, that just that's almost felt like what hip hop was right there, you know, like leaving the edit and leaving that that grit, that crunchiness versus editing it out and making it, you know, the correct or cleaner way. In order to coordinate with the multitude of sounds the album manages to pack into each track, Roland remembers having to use essentially every bit of space the studio had. Collaborators would often work on pieces of the same song simultaneously, trading ideas in real time. We had quite a few songs that we were working on back and forth. There's two studios in the in Germano. There's Studio One and Studio Two, and then there's a lounge for each of them, and a live room as well for each one. So we had set up basically studios in each one of those rooms. So really, we had about six studios going at the same time. We had both the control rooms going, and they were mixing and producing stuff to add to the records. Um, in the live rooms, I'd set up, you know, giant speakers for them to blow their ears out. The whole thing was like a cross between a reality competition, a Silicon Valley startup, and an assembly line, which makes perfect sense for a Kanye album. In the lounges as well, there was, you know, people, there's guys in the, uh, on the headphones with their laptops just trying to, you know, do what they can to make it on the Kanye record, so to speak. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, 
your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Meanwhile, Ye was also holding sessions 4,000 miles away with one of music's most legendary producers, as Hudson Mohawk recalls. A bunch of it was done at Rick Rubin's place in Malibu. It was nice to not have like, you know, a 50-person crew or something like that. It was maybe like 10 people or something, which is always like a, a more pleasant way of working because everybody's a bit more kind of on the level and there's less kind of posturing and everybody's kind of on the level. Rick Rubin would be a key architect on Yeezus. Kanye called him with just five weeks left on the album's deadline, at which point the rough cut was still nearly three and a half hours long. Rubin worked marathon days for the next two plus weeks to help cut it down. Back to New York Times music critic John Caramonica. If you go back to the earliest Rick Rubin productions, you know, they all say reduced by Rick Rubin. And that was basically Rick kind of like imposing, I mean, maybe like a punk or a hardcore discipline onto early hip hop when early hip hop was like kind of formless a little bit structurally. He reduced Kanye a little bit on this album. Just pare away all the bullshit. Just go in there, scream the lyrics, right? And have like the most assaultive bass and production uh, that, that we can pull together. And that's it. That's the stuff. We're not trying harder than that. That's the stuff. Like Rick Rubin would not have been good on graduation, but he's perfect for Jesus. One of the tracks Rubin helped shape was the album closer Bound 2. It came together late in the process, as Rubin told Rolling Stone's Corey Grow in 2016. Close your eyes and let the word paint a thousand pictures. One good girl is worth a thousand bitches. Bam! The song was written without that sample. The sample was kind of a last-minute thing, and it had a lot of uh, had a lot of R&B music in it. And that was the idea for the chorus: like take it from this sort of R&B thing and turn it into this kind of um, post-punk edge thing, like Alan Vega Suicide. And his the lyrics he wrote were so good and funny, and you know, just turned into a really good record. 
Outside of a handful of singles and good music collaborations, Kanye was relatively quiet in the years leading up to Yeezus, especially by his own standards. By early 2013, rumors had started to swirl online about a possible album on the way. It was also the same year that Kanye's then-wife, Kim Kardashian, was expected to deliver the couple's first child. Then, in the spring of 2013, Kanye deleted all of his then-legendary tweets and posted a single message, June 18. A few weeks later, Kanye performed on SNL, debuting the first single from Yeezus, Black Skinhead. Dressed in a studded leather jacket, he performed the jarring new track in front of projections of what appeared at first glance to be clan robes doused in black. Images of slogans like Not For Sale would also appear. For my theme song, black. my leather black jeans on, black. my by any means on, part and I'm getting my scream on. The song and the performance were an immediate point of contention. There were those who took offense to the title, claiming that it made light of hate groups full of actual skinheads. A month later, and a week before release day, Kanye would headline Governor's Ball Festival in New York City, where he stood defiant on his new direction, expressing frustration with the slow process of corporate media. The crowd loved it. When Ye started literalizing his rollouts, started basically like breaking the fourth wall. Again, very consistent with evolutions in internet culture, very consistent with a kind of understanding that like social media transparency is not necessarily the same thing as vulnerability. When it came out on June 18th, many of the genre's purists saw Kanye's experimentations as a bridge too far. Kanye had an answer for those critics, as he told Zane Lowe in 2013. It's like mm. I'm speaking with today's textures. Mm. If you look at it 200 years from now, it's not going to stand out in the way that, you know, 808s or Yeezus mm. stands out mm. and completely can push or redefine or make people say, you know, hey, I, I completely hate that or I completely love that, but let me just think differently. Here's New York Times music critic John Caramonica again. The thing that people inherited from Yeezus, I think, was a sense that rap songs didn't have to be rap songs in the way that we understood rap songs to be in the 2000s and certainly in the 90s or the 80s. They could be industrial. They could be punkish. You know, they could be dark. They could be all these things that didn't always coexist in the genre. And I think, if you know, there's probably a line to be drawn from Yeezus in 2013 to kind of like OG SoundCloud stuff. Kanye also didn't shy away from controversial lyrics on Yeezus. While Kanye was never necessarily known as a family-friendly rapper, Yeezus featured lyrics that crossed the line even for him. Most notably, there is the unrepentantly raunchy track I'm In It, where Kanye spins an X-rated metaphor out of the Black Power Fist salute. Sound engineer Dave Rowland remembers working on that track with Kanye. One of the big things that I do remember was I'm In It. That was way more of almost a record into itself. I mean, I, I remember that one being a, a long song. Uh, maybe it was uh, seven or eight minutes or something like that. Um, but it, it, it just had so many peaks, valleys, everything going on and that i remember hearing the final version of that one i was i was a little a little disappointed because i was like man that 
that record was just a special thing. And, you know, I got, I understand you gotta, you know, you tighten it up and make it, you know, a little bit more palatable for, for every, everybody. Um, but there was, yeah, I do remember there was a lot more like just guitar stuff, crazy, you know, just weird sounds. In Kanye's very unique way, the album opened up dialogues about race and hip hop. Blood on the Leaves begins with a sample of singer and civil rights activist Nina Simone's 1965 rendition of Strange Fruit, a song about the practice of lynching in the American South. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Everybody says, who does he think he is? I just told you who I thought I was, a god. I just told you, that's who I think I am. Would it have been better if I had a song that said, I am a nigga? Or if I had a song that said, I'm a gangster? Or if I had a song that said, I am a pimp? All those colors and patinas fit better on a person like me, right? But to say you are a god, especially when you got shipped over to the country that you're in and your last name is a slave owner's. How could you say that? How could you have that mentality? Kanye would make the issue of race a centerpiece of his Yeezus Tours merch, which featured Confederate flag symbols on t-shirts and hoodies, in a move that Kanye himself would describe as reappropriating harmful symbols. The controversial merch was the beginning of a larger aspiration for Kanye in the fashion world. Being a hip-hop generation fashion designer, a hip-hop generation fine artist, a hip-hop generation lawyer, a hip-hop generation accountant, like, this is all stuff that's starting to happen. And Ye is positioned to be the person who, like, sweeps that generation into power. Virgil, working for Ye, creative director of, of Donda, Virgil is a person who is brought up within this system to believe that that's all possible. He doesn't come from a generation where he thinks, ah, we're still kind of like scratching our way in. He's already in, as far as Ye is, at least. You know, by the time um, Yeezus happened, like, they've already done their Fendi time together. You know, they've been, uh, Ye's been making collections. Virgil's been by his side this whole time. Today, the impact of Yeezus can be heard everywhere, from Playboy Cardi to Brooklyn Drill. One musician, Brooklyn-based JPEG Mafia, remembers the resistance Yeezus inspired at the time of its release. Musically, I would say yeah, and then, like, its legacy as like a divisive album. I love it. I wish all my albums were that divisive. It makes, it, it just, I enjoy it, you know? It, I like watching people hear something actually new, you know, because people claim, oh man, I need something new. We need to hear that new shit. And then when they actually, you know what? We need that new shit, man. I'm tired of this, all this, all this shit. And then when they actually get something new, the first thing they do is, we need to go back to the old shit. I loved watching that reaction because I knew it would be different in the future. And like, it had an influence on me just because, um, you know, he tried it. He tried to be, he tried it. That was the next album after my beautiful fantasy, uh, Dark Fantasy and shit. And it was completely different. But he, he, was ball, he was ballsy enough to take the risk. Hudson Mohawk still thinks about all of the songs that never made it onto the album. The scrap recordings that shed even more light onto how ahead of its time Jesus was. There were a lot of songs that, that didn't go on the final one. And I remember I had this studio in London. Mike Dean, who's one of the other producers, 
he had told me about this particular pair of older speakers, larger than washing machine size speakers. And I had just gotten a pair of them and installed them in my studio in London. And I remember we were just having like insane after parties, having the studio just pitch black and just playing these songs at, at like deafening levels with like 40 people in the studio. There's a whole bunch of songs that I still listen to now that, that didn't make it on that. And like many of the collaborators on Yeezus, Hudson Mohawk would go on to produce for a number of major rap artists, including Drake and ASAP Rocky. Still, he says his work on the iconic album stands out to this day. There's, a, I guess, like a community of people who are trying to get to everyone who was involved in that record using like fake emails, trying to like scam files from from people to try and piece together these missing songs and missing uh, missing parts of the project. And that's still an ongoing, I mean, that happened last week to me. There's still people kind of trying to source that music, which is testament to how much of a cultural kind of impact that record had. I just need to clear my mind now. It's been racing since the summertime. Now I'm holding down the summer now. And all I want is what I can't buy now. Cause I ain't got the money on me right now. And I told you to Jesus landed at number 269 on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums list. To hear more, check out the Rediscover Kanye West playlist on Amazon Music. I'm Brittany Spanos. This has been the season finale of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, an Amazon original podcast. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Hank Schemer, Gus Winner, and myself. This episode was produced by Jeffy Haza. Our senior producer is Michelle Lands. Mixing by Marquise Neal. Additional production help by Mary Dew. Bridget Shelsey is our production manager. Peter Miller is our music supervisor. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Nathan Brackett, Morgan Jones, Steph Walkman, and Lauren D. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Kanye West's interview with Zane Lowe provided by BBC Motion Gallery Getty Images. Special thanks to John Caramonica and Corey Grow. Thank you for listening to this season of Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. You can find all episodes from both seasons of the podcast on Amazon Music. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them, In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.